According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Philippians. We are in Philippians 3, and I want to pick up where we left off Wednesday night. We're looking at verses 17 through 21. And we have in these verses a, uh, a marvelous passage as it relates to the rapture of the church. One of my favorite topics, I can preach on the rapture at the drop of a hat. And, uh, and so we're going to be doing that here this morning, going through the major rapture passages to make sure we're clear on it. I think it uh, used to be taught more frequently than it is these days that uh, in uh, many circles, uh, dispensationalism is, is now out of favor. And, uh, and even uh, the pre-tribulational rapture is now disputed and rejected which is sad because that's uh, our blessed hope. It's our happy hope. And when you take away the happy hope, what are you left with? Uh, and so we have to talk about it. We're going to talk about it both hours, by the way, because we have uh, Hebrews chapter 10 that also speaks of our happy hope and uh, the hope that we have uh, in Christ, the hope we have which enters within the veil. And so this happy hope fixed on our rapture expectation is really a, a central element to our priesthood in Christ. And that will, uh, that will come up next hour in Hebrews chapter 10. For this morning in Philippians chapter 3, we talk about our citizenship is in heaven, it says in verse 20, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. You see, we get resurrected without dying when He returns for us at the rapture of the church. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. And that final phrase is not a throwaway line. It's not something you just gloss over and rush on to the next chapter. There's actually a significance to the power that he used at creation, the power that the Father used in raising him, and the power that Jesus will use when he transforms the the body and bride of Christ into conformity with his body at the rapture of the church. And so that's what this power is talking about here in verse 21. The power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And that gets you into millennial power and fullness of time power in our eschatological studies. All right, before we start this morning though, uh, remember God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to give each believer priest the opportunity to prepare your heart for spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for this blessing, thankful for the opportunity, because none of us deserve this. Who are we, Father? We are we're sinners, but we're sinners saved by grace, and so I thank you for that. I thank you for the grace that saves us and the grace that restores us to fellowship and the grace that opens our eyes to see truth and opens our ears to hear your, your message as it goes forth. So this morning, Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Bless our time in your word this morning. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to run through this uh, particular slideshow. And uh, remember, this is our review. We've really finished the Philippians series already. And uh, we're just using these recap messages to run through the slideshow an additional time to find our typos and to fix things before we publish the notebook. (coughs) And this is one of the points... There's going to have a uh, significant edit 
we're going to actually um, add a point E to the subpoints that aren't in these notes, that aren't, weren't in the original notes as, uh, as we work through it. So uh, stay tuned for that. The rapture of the church is uh, a significant event. It is something that is very worthwhile to study. It's not normally studied out of the book of Philippians. The primary text for the rapture doctrine comes either in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 or 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in fact, uh, a comprehensive rapture doctrine requires both 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, that you blend them both together and you have a full understanding of the, of the rapture doctrine. In addition, uh, there are uh, additional passages like John 14, like Philippians chapter 3, also like 2 Timothy chapter 2. And that's the one I'm going to add under subpoint E, and that's the one I'm going to add for us here this morning if we have time and make sure we have time to get that far and to work our way through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 because I think that gets overlooked and, uh, and it requires uh, some work in the Greek and I think uh, there's um, uh, terms that are disputed and because they're disputed, to me, I think that the dispute causes uh, pastors and theologians and so forth to avoid it and just stick with the easy passages. 1 Thessalonians 4 is easy. 1 Corinthians 15 is easy. And we can do those passages without any dispute so save yourself the headache, don't bother with the dispute, just teach rapture doctrine with the, with the easy passages. And, and I understand that, and I think there's a setting for that. But at the same time, if I avoid 2 Thessalonians 2, and if I don't engage in the dispute, I think we can win the dispute. I think the dispute is easy. And, and then you can walk through, and then you can add a beautiful rapture text to your arsenal, to your quiver, becomes one more arrow in your quiver, and best of all, it's the arrow that proves the pre-tribulational timing. It, puts a, it just puts an arrow through the heart of the mid-trib and post-trib uh, rapture views. And so in that sense, Second Thessalonians 2 becomes the best of the rapture passages. Not the one you want to avoid, but the one you really want to, to focus on if in fact you find yourself debating uh, mid-trib, post-trib, uh, pre-trib rapture. All right. So uh, typically taught from 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians 15, yet the details from Philippians 3.21 provide details not found in the normally used passages. And so we glean what we glean out of here, and that adds to what we've learned from the other passages. So if you want to join with me now, let's flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll take a look at it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we have the opportunity, and, and I know you've heard this before, and I know you've heard Rapture Doctrine probably many, many times before, but to me it's always a blessing to remind ourselves of, uh, particularly to remind ourselves that today could be the day. There's no calendar that tells us when the Rapture is going to take place, and there's no prophecy that has to happen prior to the trumpet sounding and the bride calling home. And so it could be today, it could have been last night. It could be a thousand years from now. I don't think it will be. I expect it in my lifetime. And that uh, becomes important also. All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and starting in verse 13, it says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. And recognize here's a rapture passage with hope in its context that we are believers in the church age, and so we're different from the unbelievers. And we have the hope that they don't have. We have the living hope. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory, that we as born-again believers with Christ indwelling us, we have this living hope constantly. And so with respect to our loved ones, our friends and family, uh, our departed ones, our fathers, for example, on Father's Day, this is my first Father's Day to have my earthly father located with my heavenly father, all right? And so that becomes a, an emotional thing there too. But there's a hope because of the resurrection. There's a hope because of the rapture of the church and the delight that we're going to have to meet in, uh, in the air as this passage describes. For if we believe, and this is assumed to be true, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. In other words, it's, it's a given, obviously. We're born again believers. Of course, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. All right, and, and we want to break this apart and understand this. There's a wealth of, of content just in this phrase here alone. So this doesn't refer to every physically dead human being because uh, it doesn't, re- first of all, we're going to exclude unbelievers, unbelievers uh, that are dead, the dead unbelievers, and they're not saved and they're in hell. All right, so this passage excludes them. This passage also excludes Old Testament believers who are not in Jesus, who are not in Christ. That becomes significant, all right? So understand, pick your favorite Old Testament believers. If you like Daniel or you like Job or you know David, King David, whatever, um, you've got your favorite Old Testament characters. Born again, they're saved, they have eternal life, but they're not in Jesus. They're not in Christ. That's an expression that refers specifically to the positional truth blessings for the church age. So they believe, they received eternal life, their sins were forgiven, they're saved like we're saved, but they don't have the portfolio of assets that we have in the church age. Our dispensation is unique. They didn't receive the the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They weren't sealed with with the Holy Spirit of promise. They weren't baptized into union with Jesus Christ in the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. All of those positional blessings required for Jesus to finish his work at the cross, to rise again from the dead, to ascend to the Father's right hand, to be seated at the Father's right hand. Only then can the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to this earth and indwell believers of our current church age. And so that's something that began on Pentecost. That's something that began on uh, you know 50 days after the crucifixion on Pentecost of 33 AD. And it still continues today. The church age started at Pentecost 33 AD, continues to this day, and it will end hopefully today. It will end at the rapture of the church when all of the spirit-indwelled believers are snatched out of here, raptured out of here. And when the Holy Spirit departs in that way, because every living saint departs with the Holy Spirit, then uh, the restraint is lifted, the Holy Spirit is gone, and those left behind for the tribulation they're going to face Satan. They're going to face Antichrist. They're going to face hell on earth. The gates, of, uh, <laughs> the gates of the abyss are going to be flung wide open and 200 million demons are going to flood this place. Not a good thing, right? We don't want to be here. We won't be here for, uh, for that to happen. All right, so paying attention to the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That's a significant expression. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Sleep being a metaphor for physical death. It's simply a sleep from which we will awake. We will awaken in the resurrection. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. 
mystery doctrine that's being unfolded is given by revelation from Jesus. It's not found in the Old Testament, but it's given in the, to the church in the New Testament. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so this is the order in which this is going to happen. So we are alive and we remain. The living generation at the time the trumpet sounds. If it's today, then all of us in this room, we are the rapture generation. And we can look forward to that. But we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And this could be then the fear. I believe that there were believers in Thessalonica that had heard this teaching when Paul was in town and then they started to have more questions about it. And they wanted to know, because from an Old Testament framework, the resurrection requires the kingdom. The resurrection requires second advent. The resurrection requires the millennium. And the idea then that, that we're going to be raptured out of here ahead of the tribulation, that might cause some, some thought that, uh, that those who don't live long enough to, to reach the rapture, boy, they're just going to miss out. Because they can't get resurrected until, until second advent. They can't get resurrected until the kingdom. If all you have to go by is Old Testament doctrine of resurrection. Well, thankfully, we have the, the New Testament revelation that says, oh, no, no, wait a minute. The rapture itself, not only does it translate living saints, but it also resurrects the dead in Christ. That the church age believers will be resurrected at that, uh, at that same moment. So we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise first. So my dad, my mom, all our loved ones that, of, the, of the church age that had parted, going all the way back to Pentecost. Every, we're talking the apostle Paul, all the apostles, going all the way back to Pentecost. Every born again believer throughout church history. You know, John Calvin and Martin Luther and all the reformers and every believer for 20 centuries, now 21st century of, of, of church age believers. The dead in Christ will rise first. That's, I believe that's a much larger set than we who are alive and remain. I think the, the, the majority of the bride is already in heaven because they've died in Christ. And that it's only the current generation that really we're a remnant. We are a remnant when it comes down to it. I'll, I say that, but then Somebody will hit me with some demographics and some population statistics, and we've never had 7 billion people on the planet before, and so, okay, I'll grant you that. We've got, uh, we do have a larger population base, but most of them are unbelievers. How many are saved? All right. And is the currently living saved population, is it greater than 20 centuries of departed uh, church uh, membership? I don't know. All right. So let's look at this some more. So uh, the dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and remain. And so there's a first and then there's a then. And I tend to think that it's just moments afterwards. I tend to think that it's, it's, uh, it's within, you know, a, 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 there's no time frame that's mentioned here. It just says first and then it says then. When we look at 1 Corinthians, we're going to read about a twinkling of an eye. And, uh, and then that becomes debatable. Is the twinkling of an eye, does that cover everything? Does that include the first and the then? The first, the dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. It, if, if all of that happens within the twinkling of an eye, well, then we're, we're okay. If the first followed by the then, even if it's only a one-minute time frame, a two-minute time frame, an hour, what if they have an hour on this earth? 
it wouldn't violate these verses with a first and then a then. Something to think about. All right? I don't preach it. I don't say it's fact. But it, it would not violate the grammar of this text because this text says first and then it says then. Okay? I'm teaching Philippians first this morning. Then I will teach Hebrews. And there's an hour and a half gap in between those, those events from 9.30 to 11 o'clock. All right. Then we who are alive and remain, we caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So caught up, we will be caught up. And this is where we get our word rapture. Uh, it comes actually from the Latin, rapto, and uh, the Latin Vulgate, which was the standard uh, Christian Bible in the Western church for many, many years. Uh, the Latin Vulgate is what gives us the verb rapto, which gives us the, the term rapture. It's a theological term um, as far as that goes. You might have skeptics that tell you, oh, the word rapture is never in the Bible and blah, blah, blah. They're, they're lying to you or they're misinformed. It's right here. The Greek verb is harpazo. And, uh, and if you want to come up with a cognate term out of harpazo, uh, be my guess. But I'm going to stick with rapture. We're going to be caught up. We're going to be snatched. Think of velociraptor if you want. Any raptor, uh, any bird. We got birds that are raptors. And uh, those come from the, uh, the Latin rapto. And that's what's going to happen to all of us. We're going to be snatched. And uh, notice it's all of us. We who are alive and remain. That's all of us. Who gets left behind in this? Some people try to create a, a partial rapture theory out of this. It's just insane. You know, as if, as if Jesus is going to come for part of his bride. Are you kidding me? Any man that gets married wants the whole bride. He takes, he takes the whole girl when, he's, when, when, when the wedding is done. That's what happens. You, you take the whole girl with you. And we, uh, it's a whole bride that gets raptured in the, the rapture of the church. To meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, why are we meeting the Lord in the air? Because he's not going to land on the earth. That's significant. He doesn't land on the earth until second advent, seven years later. He lands on the earth. He lands on the Mount of Olives. We know exactly where he's going to land. He lands where he took off and, uh, at the ascension in 33 AD. All right, but we meet him in the air. The reason why is because he's taking us back to heaven. And it's not stated in this text, but it is stated in John 14. That's why we have to compare Scripture to Scripture. We have to put all these things together. That's what you do when you rightly divide the word of truth. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I do like, so we shall always be with the Lord. To me, those are some of the sweetest words in this whole text, right? Because we shall always be with the Lord. And, uh, and you know, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure this out. It means we shall always be with the Lord. Where he goes, we go. That's, uh, that's the blessing of, of our union with Christ and uh, the things there. I had a man tell me once that uh, he was actually laughing at me. He's a pastor. And I was teaching Revelation 19 about the uh, second advent and Jesus descending out of heaven on the white horse and the armies of heaven following him on white horses. And, uh, and I mentioned that I'm, I've only ridden a horse six times in my life. I'm not very comfortable on a horse. And uh, hopefully that won't be an issue for me at Second Advent that we'll, uh, we'll have some remedial horse training before we go into battle. Um, at least in a resurrection body, if I fall off, it won't hurt. But, uh, you know, <laughs> anyway, so he's laughing at me. And, uh, and he said, the, the, the bride won't be in the armies of heaven. Are you kidding? And so he, he had a theological dispute about the bride being a part of the armies of heaven. And I said, are you kidding me? 
I said, of course, I know there's an angelic uh, battalion and that there's, there's uh, a bride battalion and there's Old Testament saints and the armies of heaven. He's, he's the, the captain of the Lord of hosts, and that's hosts plural. So if you've got an, an, a heavenly host, that's one host, and then you've got other hosts to go with that, including the bride. We're the best soldiers out there. We have armor. We've got a sword. We've got all kinds of stuff. And um, anyway, so he was saying, oh, no, no, under Mosaic law, when you get married, um, you know, the, the man doesn't go to war for a year and the wife never goes to war. I said, wow, that's the basis of your theology then. That's, that's incredible because we're not the normal bride and we are going to war because, you know, my Bible says, thus we shall always be with the Lord. And I think everything post-rapture where the Lord is, we are because we shall always be with the Lord. If he's coming out of heaven with a white horse, we're coming out of heaven with white horses. And that's what Revelation 19 teaches. Because thus we shall always be with the Lord. So therefore comfort one another with these words. All right, so now to outline this. Physically dead church-age saints presently in heaven will come with Jesus at his coming, returning to their former bodies, being raised and glorified first being raised and glorified first. In fact, Clarence Larkin even drew this in some of his drawings and some of his schematics. The idea that the Lord leads them out of heaven, he stops in the air and they swoop down, their souls swoop down to the earth to, uh, to be reunited with their uh, physical bodies, resurrected, glorified on the earth. Then, and so that's church age saints. It doesn't include Old Testament believers like Daniel and Noah and Job. This doesn't include uh, unbelievers of any, of any age. Unbelievers don't get raised until the great white throne. Physically living church-age saints, presently on earth, where else would we be? Physically living church-age saints, presently on earth, will then be raptured. That's snatched, harpazo. Together with them, they get snatched also. They get snatched, we get snatched. Both of us are the objects of the verb harpazo. We'll then be raptured together with the raised in Christ to meet the Lord in the air. That's the outline there. By the way, I hope you're not worried. This passage says nothing about a transformation of our being. And so if this passage was by itself, you've got to go to 1 Corinthians 15 to find about the transformation in the twinkling of an eye, or to Philippians 3 to find out about the, the changing that happens there. This verse doesn't say anything about a changing, it just talks about a snatching. All right, that's why you put Scripture together with Scripture. Because if this body gets snatched, let me tell you, that roof's going to hurt, okay? I mean, this body, if this body gets snatched, uh, try surviving at 30,000 feet, you know, in, in a twinkling of an eye to be launched at that speed, uh, this body wouldn't make it. This body wouldn't survive the, the altitude. All right. The consequences of this rapture, or the consequence of this rapture, is eternal co-location with Jesus Christ. The consequence of this rapture is eternal co-location with Jesus Christ. Remember, uh, when the Word became flesh, that body, that embodiment didn't change omnipresence. God the Son is still omnipresent. But in the embodiment of God the Son as the the God-man, Jesus Christ, in that embodiment, His body is not 
uh, everywhere. His body is is monopresent. His body walks from place to place, or sometimes across the water, but he still walks from place to place. Monopresent body, even while, of course, God the Son remains omnipresent. So we will be eternally co-located with Jesus Christ. Presently, Jesus is not on this earth. Jesus' resurrection body is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that's where he's been since he ascended. Eternal co-location with Jesus Christ. There is no mention of the eye-twinkling transformation. We're going to get that next in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, But combined with Corinthians, it does present a very clear picture. We get transformed in that twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ rise first, so they're glorified. We get transformed in the twinkling of an eye, so we're glorified without dying. And then together, them and us, we get mutually snatched. And we have the clear picture. You know what else this passage teaches? There is no mention of a day or a time. Again, read through those verses. When does it say this is going to happen? (laughs) It doesn't. There is no mention of when. Because it could be now. It could be any moment of any day. And that's, uh, and it's been that way since it was revealed in mystery doctrine. It has always been imminent. From the time it was revealed, there was never a time frame or a sign or any kind of an indication. More on that next hour. No mention. So if you, and then, which by the way, this point does not keep people from writing books. And you can go to the Christian bookstore and you're going to find all kinds of books out there with these geniuses that have written their theories on, in fact, I shouldn't tease them, but it's a boy I grew up with that's written a book on the rapture and he pinpointed the time. And it's gone through four editions now because he keeps updating it. And it just, it breaks my heart. And I love the kid. I love the kid. He's my age, but he's, we grew up together. And um, I, I love him like I can't begin to tell you. But it breaks my heart that he that he's absorbed in this okay no man knows the day or the hour and that's uh that's our our blessing all right no mention of day or time that's why i think it's today but i thought the same thing yesterday and sadly if it doesn't happen today i will think the same thing tomorrow if we have it tomorrow okay i don't think we're going to have it tomorrow because i think the rapture is happening today let's go to first corinthians chapter 15 back up now to first corinthians and this order is, um, Paul wrote Thessalonians before he wrote Corinthians. You can kind of presume that that's the order that the mystery was revealed in. I, th- I think if, the, if, the, if this content had been revealed earlier, then Paul would have included that most likely in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, and we've got a whole chapter here on the resurrection, but we'll uh, skip most of the chapter and look down to verses 50 and following, because he teaches 49 verses of resurrection that applies right in line with Old Testament understanding of resurrection, the resurrection of life at the beginning of the millennium, resurrection of judgment at the great white throne at the end of the millennium, but then comes a mystery. So I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Those are two separate issues. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Mystery doctrine relates to the church, unrevealed in the Old Testament. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, transformed. You know, Bruce Banner just became the Incredible Hulk. 
or what have you. Okay, this is much better than any comic book. We will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, does that include the dead in Christ rising first and then we will be changed? Is all of that uh, absorbed in this moment in the twinkling of an eye? Maybe, possibly. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So same thing he said in 1 Thessalonians 4. There's a resurrection, our change. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will put on the imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? All right. And so here's the outline of what we have here. Physically living church-age saints will be changed in a resurrection-like transformation. Resurrection-like transformation. The, the primary difference being God doesn't have to kill us all first so that he can then raise our, our dead bodies. Right? I, mean, what would, I mean, he could if he wanted to, I suppose, just blast us all dead and then raise us. But this says no, he's going to transform that's what Philippians also says, by the way. It agrees with that transformation. So physically living church-age saints will be changed in a resurrection-like transformation. In an eye-twinkling moment, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and living saints will be changed. All of that in the twinkling of an eye. A split second, we would say. There's probably some scientists with their high-speed cameras that are going to try to track it. Who knows? But there you go. No mention of a snatching, by the way. So is this a rapture text or not? Of course it's a rapture text. It just parallels the First Thessalonians 4 text that uses the harpazo verb. This text does not use the harpazo verb, but it still is a rapture text because it's parallel to the text that does use the harpazo verb. Understand, we're comparing Scripture to Scripture, which is what we're commanded to do. No mention of the snatching, no mention of meeting in the air. But combined with Thessalonians, it does present a clear picture. You know what else it doesn't mention? No day or no time. <laughs> okay? doesn't tell you the day or the time. We don't know the day or the hour. The Father does. And so these are the dominant passages. And if this is all you go with, then you've got a great... God, uh, rapture doctrine. You could teach this in a home Bible study or in a personal devotion or something along those lines. Um, you also notice that these, because these are church age passages, that there are nothing, there's nothing in any of these texts that centers on uh, the tribulation or the millennium. Those, uh, if you want information on those ages, then you're basically dealing with Israel and either Old Testament passages or some New Testament passages that center on Israel. And so because we have the rapture described in isolation, we have no way to know through these two passages we've seen so far, we have no way to know, well, is it before the tribulation, after the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation? Where, where is it connected to another event? Right? And that, that's important. It's a good exercise for us. We do the same thing in a, in a walk through the Bible home evangelistic class. You, you, you string a timeline up like a clothesline and then you start hanging people on the clothesline and you say, all right, here's, uh, here's, uh, here's David. Where does David go? You put David on the, on the, on the clothesline and then you grab somebody else and you say, all right, here's Moses. Where does Moses go? 
Is Moses before David or after David? Before David, very good. So you put Moses up there before David. And then you grab Jeremiah and you say, all right, where's, where does Jeremiah go? Is he before Moses or after Moses? You know, is he before David or after David? And then you, you put him on there. And it's, it's just a thing. And uh, kind of use it as a party icebreaker kind of a thing. You get a, when you're teaching the class, it helps you to kind of gauge your people. And if they've, if they've got a little bit of a background or if they have no background of any kind, and then it, it, it becomes very clear. So, so you can do the same exercise, right? And you put, okay, the, the cross, and you put the cross up there. And the resurrection, well, obviously that's after the cross. And then uh, the rapture, well, that's after, right? And then tribulation, oh, now you've got to debate. And you've got to debate because 1 Thessalonians 4 never mentions the tribulation. And 5 does. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't mention the tribulation. Okay, and so there is some debate until, again, you compare Scripture to Scripture. I think the corollary from 4 to 5 is significant in 1 Thessalonians, and then I think 2 Thessalonians 2 just nails it. That's the nail in the coffin, which we'll get to before 1030. All right, I have vowed before the Lord. We will get there. Now, supporting passages as well. Supporting passages as well. I think John 14 is a marvelous rapture text. Uh, it's in the upper room and walk to the garden discourse of John 14. The, uh, the 12 were there that night and heard this, including Matthias, by the way, after Judas Iscariot walked out to go fetch the soldiers and arrest Jesus. He gave this message on the night that he was betrayed. And Judas goes out to fetch the soldiers and Jesus starts revealing some, some mystery doctrine. He starts revealing information that will pertain to the church. And he gives them an entire sermon that they have no chance of understanding until Pentecost, until the Holy Spirit comes and explains it to them. And he tells them this in these chapters. But in John 14, verse 1 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And this is so, uh, I don't know, profound. There's a lot here. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. So he's got, you know, you could think of these as uh, condos, okay, residences. Uh, King James rendered mansions, and that's unfortunate. Uh, I don't think the Greek sustains the idea of a mansion, but in any event. Um, but there are many, many dwelling places. And so peoples from all races and tribes and tongues and nations, uh, they... They have a place, all right? And he's going to redeem men from every, and women, people, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. They will be redeemed, and uh, they have a place in the Father's house. But there is a place that's not there yet, because he says, I go to prepare a place for you. See, all those other places are, are fine and dandy for all those other people. But the bride needs something special. The bride needs something new. And because the bride is a new creation, the bride is a new heavenly citizenship. In Christ, we're not Jew or Gentile. We're not white or black or whatever. We're not, we're not Americans or Ukrainians or Filipinos or whatever. We are a heavenly citizenship. We are a heavenly people group, a new creation. And so all those other condos, all those other places that the Father has, they're not suitable for us. We're no longer uh, what we used to be before we came to Christ. We're now royal family of God in Christ. 
And so he says, I go to prepare a place for you, a place that's not yet in existence when he speaks these words, because the church is not yet in existence when he speaks these words. He's saying this before Pentecost. He's saying this on the night he's betrayed, the day before he goes to the cross. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, for the disciples on that night, they don't have 1 Thessalonians 4. They don't have 1 Corinthians 15. They don't know what you know. You know more than they knew that night. But now knowing what you know now and looking back at these words... When he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. What do you think that is? That's the rapture. He comes again, he, he, meet, he stops in the air, and he receives us to himself. We meet the Lord in the air. And again, thus we shall always be with the Lord. What does he say here? Where I am, there you may be also. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. We are eternally co-located with Jesus Christ from then on and forevermore. And you know the way where I am going. Now, it should be fairly obvious by this point that for 2,000 years, Jesus has not been in Jerusalem preparing our dwelling place. Jesus has been in heaven preparing our dwelling place. So for the uh, post-tribulational rapture people that think that we're going to rise up, meet the Lord in the air, and then drop back down to Jerusalem and conquer at Armageddon, um, they're failing to understand that he's taking us home. He's taking us to give us the grand tour of the, of the dwelling places, not the mansions, but the, the, the residences that he's prepared for us. All right, so we have the information here. In the context of his death, resurrection, ascension, and session, Jesus promised to prepare a dwelling place for his bride. That's the promise in this chapter. Spoken to the disciples before the church age, written by the Apostle John in the church age. Thinking back to this message he heard on this night. Remember, John wasn't written before Pentecost. John's a part of the Greek canon that was written after Pentecost in the church age. Come and receive you to myself. This anticipates the meeting in the air. Now, it doesn't spell it out. It doesn't give all the details 1 Thessalonians 4 gives. It can't. It's not going to unveil mystery doctrine, but it is consistent with what will be revealed in mystery doctrine. So, come and receive you to myself anticipates the meeting in the air. It doesn't violate mystery doctrine at all. You know what else anticipates the meeting in the air? Enoch. You know what else anticipates the meeting in the air? Elijah. Elijah never died. He went up in a fiery chariot, right? And Enoch, he walked with God and he was snatched out. So you have one Gentile and one Jew that, were, that departed planet Earth without physical death. I think that illustration anticipates the rapture of the church, where Jew and Gentile are one body in Christ and get snatched out of here without dying. And God selected Enoch to be his Gentile anticipation. And he selected Elijah to be his Jew uh, anticipation. And we have uh, anticipations without exposing mystery doctrine, and really without fully developing it. You can't teach a comprehensive rapture doctrine just based on Enoch and Elijah. You need the the content of, of these Bible verses. Where I am, there you may be also. This delineates heaven as the prepared place 
and the destination for us all when the meeting in the air is concluded. Landing on the Mount of Olives is not an option. Jesus has not been on the Mount of Olives the last 2,000 years preparing us a, uh, a dwelling place. Heaven is the prepared place and the destination for us all when the meeting in the air is concluded. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4? We meet the Lord in the air, thus we shall always be with the Lord. And that's where the chapter ends, kind of in suspension, right? We're suspended in the air as the chapter ends. Well, where do we go after that? Heaven, John 14 tells us. Landing on the Mount of Olives is not an option. There's also no mention of a day or a time. And uh, I would love it if there was a verse in here somewhere that said, uh, you know, Sunday, June 16th. <laughs> but, you know, if we had a date, there'd be some slugs out there that would, you know, I, I'm the biggest procrastinator in the church, but, you know, I mean, that's our tendency, right, in humanity to put things off. And so uh, imminency uh, overrules that. Imminency uh, focus, makes us focus on this day, day after day, as long as it's called today. John 14. Philippians 3. <coughs> This is a Philippian series after all. And this is uh, the text that started this. We already talked about our heavenly citizenship. You know, citizenship is where you belong. And if you travel overseas, you know, like I went to Ukraine last month, I mean, you can do that, but I didn't become a Ukrainian. I was simply an American in Ukraine. And uh, it was fun to come back, <laughs> you know? And it's always good. I tell you, if you've never traveled overseas, I recommend it at least once in your life so that you have the joy of returning to American soil. And just thank the Lord that, uh, that he had you live in the, the greatest place in this earth until the kingdom comes. Uh, what a joy to return back to the United States, to present your American passport and to hear, welcome home. You know, yes, I belong here. Well, that's the metaphor. The reality is, I'm not an American citizen. I'm a citizen of heaven on the eternal scale of things. I'm only an American citizen for the meantime in my humanity. And so uh, we can appreciate this. All right. Every generation of the church can anticipate possibly being the rapture generation. And we actually dealt with that earlier in, uh, back up in verse 11 when he says, in order that I may possibly attain to the out-resurrection from the dead. And that phrase there, I think, needs to be retranslated. It's not the normal word for resurrection. It's the ex-anastasis, the out-resurrection from the dead. It is the non-dying out-resurrection that gets us out of here. And every generation of the church can anticipate possibly, maybe, perhaps, being the rapture generation. The goal for the prize finish line of the church age is the rapture of the church. Philippians 3.14. Can you imagine running a race and not knowing when the finish line is going to be, where the finish line is going to be, how long the race even is going to be? You know, they start you off and they just say, just keep running, follow the directions. And uh, when you get to the finish line, you'll know it. Okay, you know, and then you can imagine, I mean, earthly runners would have a horrible time with it because earthly runners specifically train for the distances they train for, you know. And Usain Bolt is—he's real speedy in the in the in the, the, the hundred, you know, in the short distances. I don't know, I don't know if he's ever done a marathon or not, but you know, um, just because you're you're the fastest man on earth at the short distances doesn't necessarily connect to longer races. Well, what if it's a 
marathon? What if it's longer than a marathon? What if you don't know at the beginning of the race how long it's going to be? And you're just running and you keep running and you keep running and you keep running because the finish line might be just around that next turn. So don't stop running. Keep running. And we have, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think that's a rapture reference right there. The goal of the prize of the upward call. When, when he descends with a shout, that's an upward call. We're, we're going to get snatched upward. A bodily transformation contrast between the humble state and the glory state. The humble state and the glory state. Now this is very similar to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, that transformation. So, and because this also speaks of a change or a transformation. And it contrasts humble state to glory. And what's curious is that even the, the humble state has a glory, so to speak, that there is the glory of the earthly is one and then the glory of the heavenly is another. And um, <coughs> it's not that God created something imperfect or that God uh, in the original design of Adam and Eve, which was sinless and, and perfect, it just wasn't glorified the way that the resurrection body will be glorified. It was a glory of a kind but just not the glory of the same kind that we're going to have in resurrection. And so uh, Philippians 3 does say, uh, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And when the glory of the second so surpasses the glory of the first, then in a sense you can look back to the glory of the first and say, wow, compared to this, that didn't, you can't even call that glory. Compared to this, was that really even a glory? Okay, Admittedly it was. At the time it was marvelous. It was glorious. But now with hindsight looking back and compared to this glory, we could almost say that didn't even have a glory. And uh, there's other texts like this in terms of law, the, the glory of Moses with giving of the law. Well, compared to what we have, you can't even call that glory. But it certainly was glory in Moses' day. An exertion of Jesus Christ's personal power. And this is uh, given in Philippians. It's not given in, uh, you know, in the, in the snatching. Is it the power of Jesus or the power of the Father or the power of the Holy Spirit? Who's, who's using the power to snatch us? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't assign power to any member of Trinity. I actually believe it's Christ because of other passages. He is claiming his bride. He does the snatching. Um, but, it, it, but Philippians sp- spells it out and related to John 5 where all judgment is given to the Son. It's the exertion of the personal power that he has been given to subject all things even to himself. And so it's a power that he ha- is entitled to because he was faithful at the cross. And that gets into some other realms as well. An exertion of Jesus Christ's personal power granted to him by God the Father by his victory in first advent. And you can read that in John 5, verses 25 through 29. I'm going to have to speed this up because I want to get to um, I want to get to that. Subjection of all things to himself. The subjection begins with the church age. It really uh, picks up speed at the rapture because now he's got the whole bride in subjection. Realizing right now that much of the bride is in apostasy. A lot of the bride is kind of flaky. There's born-again believers that are not living in the Word of God. 
I hate to say it, but there's born-again believers that are living in defiance of what the Bible says. And they think that God's hunky-dory with that. And He's not. And so the bride has to be brought into subjection. Judgment begins at the house of God. And so the bride has to be brought into subjection. And all of this foolishness with all this false doctrine and all this compromise with the world and all of this editing of the Bible to make the Bible change to modern standards, all of that's over and done with. When the, when the trumpet sounds and the bride is snatched out of here, we are transformed, we are glorified. Sin is removed. And we will all be not only with Christ, but like-minded with Christ. And that's a glory too. The subjection of all things to himself. When you read Ephesians 1, you'll notice this. It's subjection of the bride, beginning in the church age, but really looking forward to the age to come. And that uh, is the role that we're going to have in the resurrection. All right. If I take the time to look at this, I've I got 10 minutes left, and I really want to hit 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, it does say, the power is that. I think this is worth looking at here this morning. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. So hope, again, connection with the rapture. What is the hope of His calling? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? So there's a power source and it's directed towards us. These are in accordance with the workings of the strength of His might, which He, that's God the Father, brought about in Christ when He, the Father, raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So that's what the Father did for the Son. Seated Him at His right hand, seated us at His right hand. We learn about in chapter 2. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so uh, for folks that try to apply kingdom now, they're missing out on the fact that this age is just the beginning. It's the one to come where the, the true kingdom uh, fulfillment will be uh, visible on this earth. Notice he put all things in subjection under his feet. And we could end the verse there, but we don't. It goes on to say, and gave him as head over all things. So headship includes everything. And includes those all things to the church. Everything that's subject to him over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, so there, there's that. Stay tuned for more on that. Again, no mention of day or time. Philippians 3 tells us our citizenship is in heaven. We're eagerly waiting for a Savior and we don't know what day it's going to be. So just assume it's today. Live like it's today. And since it's going to be today, you want to be in fellowship. You want to be walking in the light. You don't want to be caught in carnality. You don't want to be caught in darkness. You don't want to be caught in some kind of a foolish sin issue. Get right with the Lord. Get right with the Lord today. Because that trumpet can sound and you'll be face to face with your Redeemer and your judge. Don't put it off till tomorrow. All right. Now, there will be a point E. And the point E is going to add now 2 Thessalonians. So let's return to Thessalonians, and I've got nine minutes to walk us through this. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. And, and I guess while I'm at it, I'll, I'll show you that transition from 1 Thess 4 to 1 Thess 5. 
Because First Thess 4 was the rapture doctrine. Remember that? We were just there 20 minutes ago. And now, once he gives the rapture doctrine in chapter 4, he then turns to the day of the Lord in chapter 5. And in the day of the Lord, he's talking about, of course, peace and safety and wrath and destruction and, and all these things. And he talks about what those guys are going to have to face, but not us. Okay? Not us. Because we aren't like them. We are, uh, are of the day, and so let us be sober. God, uh, verse 9 of 1 Thess 5 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So to me, I can go from chapter 4 to teach rapture doctrine for us, and then chapter 5 to teach the second advent and tribulation for them, right? And that's pretty straightforward. Chapter 4 is us with the rapture. Chapter 5 is them with the tribulation. With a statement that uh, we aren't like them. And um, you just have this over and over again. So uh, verse 3 of 1 Thess 5 says, they are saying, destruction comes upon them. They will not escape. Verse 4 says, but you, brethren, see, you're not them. You're not like them. You are sons of light. We. And so let us, not like those guys, we. Anyway, this is, uh, that's pretty clear. And if that's not clear enough, 2 Thessalonians, let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. To me, this is the nail in the coffin. But it's debatable and it requires Greek and there's a lot of sentimentality to, to cling to um, a bad interpretation. All right. In between the two letters, by the way, Satan sent a, a forgery, sent a letter to the church at Thessalonica, supposedly from Paul, saying, oops, I was wrong. Uh, there is no rapture. We're in the tribulation now. And, and they fell for it. And they got all out of sorts. And so Paul stopped and he wrote 2 Thessalonians. He said, don't fall for that lie. He says, you know better to fall for that lie. We're not in the tribulation. We can't be in the tribulation, and here's why. So, um, chapter 2 then, we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. What's that about? That's rapture. Thank you. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. You can rephrase that with one word. He could say, we request of you, brethren, concerning the rapture. Right? Now, brethren, concerning rapture doctrine, do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a, a, a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So understand, we've got the rapture in verse 1, we've got the day of the Lord in verse 2. And if you keep them straight, it's simple. So regarding rapture doctrine, don't let anybody lie to you and tell you you're in the tribulation. Understand? Don't let anybody lie to you and tell you you're in the tribulation. In other words, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. For the tribulation will not come, it will not come, unless... The departure comes first. The departure comes first. Now you probably have the word apostasy in your Bible, and that's sad. 
The King James Bible was the first English Bible to put the word apostasy in there. Seven English translations prior to King James used departure or departing. And uh, it's unfortunate that King James and ever since King James has left the word apostasy in there. It's departure. So verse 1 says, We request of you, brethren, with regard to the rapture, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, don't be quickly shaken from your composure if somebody tells you you're in the tribulation. If a message or a letter is it from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So there's the rapture in verse 1, there's the day of the Lord in verse 2. And don't confuse this with that. And with respect to the rapture, don't let anybody lie to you and tell you you're in the tribulation. That makes no sense at all. Let no one in any way deceive you. For the, the day of the Lord cannot come unless the departure comes first. The rapture comes first. Departure being the rapture, of course. The greatest departure in the history of mankind is when a body of redeemed people are departed out of here. And planet Earth loses the uh, salt and light that had been blessing it up till then. The departure has to come first. Then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He can't be revealed until we're gone. The departure comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Antichrist will sit in the Jewish temple and claim to be God and demand worship. And we know that. We know that from Daniel. We know that from other pa- Revelation. We know that from other passages of the Bible. But don't worry about Antichrist. He can't even be revealed until the departure comes first. Then the day of the Lord can come. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. The man of lawlessness is under restraint. He can't be revealed until we're gone. The departure removes the restraint. The restraint is God the Holy Spirit indwelling the bride of Christ. Here we are. Described as a what restrains him in verse 6 and a he who restrains him in verse 7. Did you notice that? Verse 6 says what restrains him now. In verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken away. Well, what is it? Is the restrainer a what or a he? Both. Numa is a neuter noun. The spirit is a what? Is a thing, but the spirit is also a person. God the Holy Spirit is a person. And the person of the Holy Spirit is always spoken of as a he, as a masculine gender. And so the Holy Spirit is both a what and a he. In fact, in my mind, it's the only conceivable uh, object of, of, this, uh, of this text. It's not Jesus. Jesus has never spoken of as a what? All right. And so uh, we have it. In any event, if you can get over the translation of apostasy, and some people get wrapped up in it because, you know, Paul said in the latter days, you know, uh, people will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. I get that. I understand. Paul does tell us that in the latter days there will be apostasy. But this text is not talking about that. This text is talking about the rapture in the second advent. And in the rapture and second advent, rapture comes first. The departure comes first. Then the day of the Lord can begin. I hope that's clear. And, uh, and when you get your notebook, you will notice 
that uh, the Philippians series notebook will have a point E and the subpoints in there that uh, to reflect what we have described here. All right. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the assurance of our uh, our blessed hope, our happy hope. At any moment, Father, we can be snatched up, transformed and snatched face to face with Christ our Savior. Might it be today. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.